Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Ruth. We've removed the Bibles and the hymnals from the sanctuary because of passing things around and germs and all that kind of stuff. So you be sure and bring your Bible with you on Sunday or, or your phone, I guess is all right. But Ruth chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this morning. And as you're turning there in your Bible and as we stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, I want to remind you that this is normally the time when we take up the offering. And uh, since we're not doing that for, for similar reasons as what I just talked about, the hymnals and Bibles, remember that you can give online. Online giving is still available. And at the back of the church, as you came in, you might have noticed some offering boxes, some locked offering boxes that you can drop your offerings in as well. You can still do that during the week, but this will make it a little easier for you to do that here on Sunday morning. So just remember to drop your offering off on the way out this morning. Ruth chapter 3, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then Naomi said, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is now winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie down, to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if not, if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Verse 14, So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, not be, let it be not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together again. Our Father, we come before you, and we praise you that you're our God. And we rejoice again together that you've been so gracious and good and kind that we could meet in this place today. But even more so, Lord, that even if we're not able to meet in this place, that, that for those who trust in Jesus, that you reside in our hearts eternally by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray for our church membership who are not able to, to be here today, God, that they would know of your presence in a very special way today. And, Father, as we worship 
continually right now as the word is preached. I pray that we will worship. Father, I pray that we would listen. I pray that, God, that your Holy Spirit would work so that our hearts are affected by this truth. We hear all kinds of things all the time. And we have to decipher fact from fiction. It's often very difficult. But when we open this book, this Word of God, we've encountered truth with no variation. So may your truth penetrate our hearts. May we listen to it and seek to live by it, knowing it's the very Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. There was a man named Elimelech in Ruth chapter 1. And Elimelech was living in the land of Israel. He was an Israelite. and He was living in the town of Bethlehem. We know a lot about Bethlehem, don't we? This was the promised land. But it was also in the day of the Judges period we see in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. It was a very, very wicked time for the people of God. Sort of like the dark ages of the people of Israel. And it was in that day when there was a great famine on the land. Is there any surprise that there was a famine on the land? That God would send famine upon the land of His people because of their sin? Because the Bible tells us in the book of Judges more than one time that in that day there was no king, and each person did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody just lived as if they were king, and God was not. So they didn't have a human king, so they just thought they would be king themselves, when in fact, God is king over His people. And they were looked to God and His Word to tell them what to do, but they were not doing that. And so a famine came upon the land. And rather than Elimelech, cry out to God on behalf of the sins of God's people upon the sins of God's nation Israel, rather than pause and pray and cry out that God would forgive them of their sin and heal their land and, and that Elimelech himself would cry out for forgiveness of his own sin, he takes matters into his own hands and he does what is right in his own eyes. He whose name Elimelech means God is king does the exact opposite and acts as if he is king. And he takes his family, his wife Naomi, and his sons Malan and Kilian, and they move to the land of Moab. Now just so you understand, the land of Moab, moving to the land of Moab, is not what a lot of, a lot of people would like to do in the state of Illinois, which is move across the border to Indiana. Moving to the land of Moab was like, not like moving from Indiana, from Illinois to Indiana. Moving to Moab, as one commentator said, is like going to join ISIS. Because Moab was a wicked nation. They had oppressed Israel for 18 years. They sacrificed their children to false gods. But here Elimelech was making this horrible move. And sure enough, when they arrive, his sons Malan and Kilian take Moabite wives, something strictly forbidden in the Scripture for an Israelite to do. Intermarrying with other people. Yet that is what they did. And over time, not only did Elimelech die, but Malan and Kilian and Naomi 
was left with her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And so I won't go through all the story again, but make a long story short. Ruth, this Moabite daughter-in-law who had lived in Moab all her life, when the famine ends in Israel, says, I will go back with you, Naomi. Your people will be my people and your God shall be my God. What an incredible commitment she was making to her mother-in-law and unbeknownst possibly to her at the time, a commitment now she was making to Yahweh, to the one true and living God. And so they turned and they went back together to Bethlehem. And the women saw Naomi and said, Could it be Naomi, whose name means pleasant? And she says, Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Yet through this story in the book of Ruth, we see that God's bitter providence is actually a story also of His beautiful providence. Because no matter what's going on in our lives and in the world, God's hand of providence is at work. With rioting in the streets, with virus threats all around, His hand of providence is at work in and through these things. It's not just as if we say, oh, well, God is in control and He's using this for His good. No, God's working in it through His good. God, God's plan is being worked out. And as one pastor has said, it's not a time for sentimental views of the sovereignty of God. It's a time to rejoice as God's people in the providence and sovereignty of God. And we see that in the book of Ruth because we come to Ruth chapter 2 and we see that there's hope for Naomi. For what we find in Ruth chapter 2 is that there's a man living in Bethlehem whose name is Boaz. And Boaz happens to be kinfolk. You know what the word kinfolk means? He's kinfolk. He's, he's not only kinfolk, he's what's called a kinsman redeemer. He's one, if he so is willing to do so, can act on Naomi's benefit and Ruth's as well. And can make sure that they are taken care of physically there in the land. And also prolong the line of Elimelech by providing a son through Ruth, as we'll see later in the book. So we look in the story of Ruth, and what we find is a love story. But it's not a love story as some would like to imagine between Ruth and Boaz. It's a love story between God and His people. My wife and I celebrated our 16th anniversary this week and every time I go to pick out cards for anniversaries or her birthday or for Valentine's Day or Christmas I look at cards and I'm picky because I don't every time I see a card that says something about luck I put it right back on the shelf because there's no such thing as it there's a sovereign hand of God that brought my wife and I together it's a blessing. I look for those cards that say blessing, but if it says, oh, I'm the luckiest man in the world, hogwash. No, no luck about it. It's blessed. Gift. Grace. Mercy. Compassion he's shown. And we look in the book of Ruth, and it says here in Ruth chapter 2, it just so happens. It's an indicator from the narrator not to say lucky Lucky Ruth that she shows up, guess in whose field she shows up to work in and glean from? Boaz. 
It's an indicator not from the narrator of the book of Ruth to say, oh, look, look how lucky Ruth is, but to show us, hey, God's sovereign hand is working out. Bitter Naomi, God is working even though you can't see it. You can't see His face, but His hand is at work. Trust Him even when you can't see His face. And so the question becomes, what will come out of this working relationship that Ruth has with Boaz? And so we come to chapter 3 in our text this morning. And we see in verses 1 through 5 that Naomi, the mother-in-law, when she finds out that Ruth's been working in Boaz's field. She says, whose who's fields you been working in today? You've, you've come back with about 30 pounds of food. Whose who's fields you been working in today? She says, Boaz. And Ruth's response, you remember? Ruth says, the Lord, has His kindness has not forsaken. His hesed, His covenant faithfulness has not forsaken, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Wow, what a, what a change for Naomi now. What a frown turned into a, to a hopeful smile. And so Naomi begins to plot in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And she says to Naomi, Naomi, you've been working with Boaz for a while now. And the threshing floor is open, the place where the harvest is being taken care of. And he's out there with the men. You need to go take a bath, get cleaned up, put some makeup on, put some perfume on, put some nice clothes on, and go out there and find where he's lying down and uncover his feet and lay down with him. That's what he says. I was talking with the kids this week. We were looking at a passage from the book of Titus and their family devotions. and It mentions the word water in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 by the washing of water and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I was trying to help them understand we're not regenerated by water, but a lot of times when we see the word water, I said, what do you think of when you see the word water? And I was hoping they'd say, well, baptism, which is not what that passage is about. But instead, when I said water, what was on their mind is they said, washing your hands. And then one of them said coronavirus. That's what I think of, water, washing hands. All these word associations, you start, that's where your mind goes. Well, in the book of Ruth, when you hear things like, take a bath, put some nice clothes on, put makeup on, go lie down where the man's laying down, find where he's laying out, lying down, uncover his feet. What? We feel like dirty-minded Baptists here, don't we? Where, where's a, what, where are our word associations going? Where's our mind going here? What's up? Is Naomi setting things up for some type of intimate... Affair? At first glance, it could be like that. But in fact, what's taking place is not a proposition by Ruth, but a marriage proposal. For I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 9. Look at your Bible. He said, so you picture the scene now. Ruth has waited and she's crept in softly. The men are all asleep. Their bellies are full, and she creeps in. She sees where Boaz is laying down, and she uncovers, takes the blanket and uncovers his feet and lays down. And somewhere in the middle of the night, the man is startled, and he looks up and says, There's a woman at my feet. Who are you? 
Notice what your Bible says in verse 9. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. When she says, spread your wings over your servant, that's not a proposition. That is a marriage proposal. Often in that culture, in that day, when a man would put his garment upon a woman's shoulder, it was a symbol of, I'm willing to protect you. I'm willing to take you under my protection. This is what Ruth was indicating by this. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It reminds us of of Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Where Boaz told her by coming to him, he was coming to, she was coming to the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she was coming to Boaz to take refuge. So how will this unfold? Here's Ruth in the middle of the night. Looking good and smelling good. Boaz not so much. Older man. Been working all day long. Will he take advantage of her? Will he be like the opportunistic rioters in the streets? I'm not saying everybody protesting is opportunistic, right? But there are some. Will it be like the opportunistic looters right now we see in the streets of many cities just looking for the opportunity to exploit what's going on? Will he take advantage like Onan did with Tamar in the book of Genesis who was called upon to be a redeemer? but would not do so, but still wanted the benefit of having intimate relations with Tamar. There was no Me Too movement in the day of Boaz. He could have easily taken advantage of the opportunity. He could have easily exploited the situation, could he not? And he could have gotten away with it. But what we see in the passage of Scripture, her request is, marry me. Be a redeemer. By by marrying me, you will take care of us in in many different ways, uh, in providing for Naomi and for her, as we'll see. So the question comes to mind, really the big question of the text is this. God is our redeemer too. And we'll see that. We're reminded of that. That's what the passage is about. It's about God. It's not about Boaz. Why was Boaz, as we'll see, why was Boaz willing to go through with it? Why was he willing to be her redeemer? Why was he willing to marry her? Didn't exploit her. Didn't take advantage of her. But we'll see in Ruth chapter 4, he's willing to go through with it and redeem her. We even see it in Ruth chapter 3. And why is God willing to redeem us? Why is God willing to meet the the greatest needs that we have spiritually? Two reasons I'll share with you as we look through the rest of the Scripture quickly. Number one, the redeemer. The redeemer responds to the exercise of faith. One of the reasons we see Boaz respond, as we'll see in chapter 3 the way we do, and the reason God responds the way He does as we see throughout Scripture, the Redeemer responds to the exercise of faith. Notice what He says in verse 10 to her, to Ruth. Look at your Bible. And He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. So again, what we're saying here, he's willing to go through with this because the Redeemer responds to the exercise of faith. Naomi's Ruth is exercising faith here by going to to him in the middle of the night in obedience to her mother-in-law. It's a great act of faith. And she says here, 
He says here, you've made this last act of kindness greater than the first. This last act of hesed, of faithfulness, of mercy, of compassion, of justice, greater than the first. In that, you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So what is he saying? Is Boaz saying, hey, this last act of kindness as, as being willing to marry an old man like me, when you could have gone after some young guy or some, rich, or some other rich fellow, and Boaz had some money, well, you're really showing a lot of kindness to me by being willing to marry just some old, old man. That's not what he's talking about, though. He says this last act of kindness is greater than the first. What was the first act of kindness? And who was it shown to? Look back in your Bible in chapter 2. Look back in your Bible in chapter 2 and notice what it says in verse 11. As Boaz is told in chapter 2 about who Ruth is and what she's done for her mother-in-law. Verse 11 of chapter 2, But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Then he says, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. You've come under the refuge of His wings. This first, the first act of kindness he refers to is the act of kindness by, for Naomi, her mother-in-law, that she returned from, she went from Moab to, to Bethlehem where she'd never been before. She didn't know anybody there, but she was willing to show kindness to her mother-in-law to take care of her and to be supportive of her. Her people would be her people and Naomi's people would be Ruth's people and Naomi's God would be her God and she would be committed to her. What an act of kindness. And, and Boaz had heard about that. And so in, in chapter 2 of Ruth, he's saying that was an act of kindness. May God repay you for that. Now she comes to him in the middle of the night and is willing to marry this older man on Naomi's behalf. It's going to benefit Ruth too. But it's for Naomi. Naomi had the plot. It's another act of kindness to her mother-in-law. And Boaz is amazed with this act of faith that she would trust her mother-in-law so much and love her so much and trust that Boaz would respond not by exploiting her but actually considering marrying her what a, what a tremendous act of faith Ruth was displaying. And then it says in verse 11, remember the question here is, why is he willing to go through with it? The Redeemer responds to the exercise of faith. He's willing. You can see his response. He's impressed. He's, he's seeing this faith and trust in, in Ruth that he's responding to by the grace of God. Look at verse 11. And now my daughter... That should have comforted her quite a bit to hear, my daughter. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my townsmen know. Notice the word for in the middle of verse 11. Whenever you see F-O-R in the Bible, pay attention to what comes after because it's getting ready to tell you a reason. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Why is he willing to consider redeeming Ruth and Naomi as well by marrying Ruth. For you're a worthy woman. That worthy woman that is that woman we see depicted in Proverbs chapter 31, the woman of excellent character. And her character has been displayed in her kindness and care for her mother-in-law. So he's willing to go through with it because he's seen this great act of faith displayed in her character and her actions. 
The Redeemer responds to the exercise of faith. And so Boaz, also being a worthy man here, Naomi's described as a worthy woman. In chapter 2, verse 1, if you look at it, it says Moab, or excuse me, it says Boaz was a worthy man. What a match! A wealthy man and a worthy man. All the wealth in the world is not going to benefit Ruth or Naomi if he's not a worthy man. If he's not a man of character. But he's both. And here comes Ruth in chapter 3. A worthy woman, a woman of character. And God is bringing this couple together. Let me just give a point of application I didn't plan on. For those of you looking, hoping to be married, wait for a worthy man. Wait for a worthy woman. You may get blessed like my wife did and get a worthy man and a good-looking man. Amen? She said amen. Coerced, but she said it. Wait. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Here's a worthy woman, and Boaz, a worthy man, is responding to the exercise of Ruth's faith. And let us be reminded there's a Redeemer greater than Boaz who responds to the exercise of faith. All who turn to the Redeemer, the Redeemer, in faith and trust will find refuge under His wings. Secondly, He's willing to go through with it not only because the Redeemer responds to the exercise of faith, but the Redeemer is compelled by His nature. He's compelled by His nature. The one who's going to redeem here doesn't look at all how it's all going to benefit Him. He's compelled by His intrinsic nature to do this. His character is displayed in His act of redemption and His willingness to redeem. This week, some of you may have saw the image of our president walking across the street holding up a Bible, this bizarre display of holding up a Bible and not saying anything at the Episcopal Church. And of course, criticized for it. But reminded about the Episcopal Church, as Dr. Albert Moeller said on his show, The Briefing, this week, There's no Bible in the Episcopal Church anymore. In Muller's words, the the Bible has gone the way, the Episcopal Church has gone the way of the dodo bird. It no longer exists. It's extinct theologically. Embracing all types of ungodly things that Scripture never teaches. Yet saying they believe the Bible, but finding all kinds of loopholes, so to speak, to justify same-sex marriage or justify women having the right to kill their babies in the womb. That's the way the Episcopal Church has gone, finding these what they call loopholes in Scripture to say, yeah, we believe the Bible, but you just misinterpreted it. I mention that because some of these things are on our minds this week. Really to help us understand, for Boaz, considering himself to be a redeemer, there are plenty of legal loopholes he could have found. Boaz was not legally obligated by the law to redeem Naomi. I won't go into it, but there's there's several things that he could have looked at and said, well, I don't really have to do this. Legal loopholes. 
But he chose to do so anyway. And he chose to do so not because he was obligated to do so. He chose to do so because you're reflecting the character of God. Our God, the Redeemer, when He redeems, it's because of His character. It's because of His nature. And so when you see this law about the law of a kinsman and redeemer in Scripture, that all this is based on, I'm going to try to explain in just a moment, what we see is it's grounded in the nature of who God is. The law of redemption of this, this, this redeeming th- somebody that sounds very strange to our ears, it's grounded in the fact that God's character is displayed in the redemption of Israel as people. Leviticus chapter 25, where we see a lot of this about the Redeemer laws mentioned, says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. God says these people are to redeem one another the way we're talking about here this morning, about to explain, because I'm the God who brought you. I'm the God who redeemed you. You do this because that's who I am. You do this because I want you to display my character and your love and care and willingness to redeem one another. The Redeemer is compelled by His nature. And so, what does it mean? We've got to pause for just a moment and talk for just a moment in order to understand this text, this strange text about redeeming someone and what that means. It's God's nature to redeem. Will it be Boaz's nature to redeem? tells us in verse 9, she says, For you are a redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel. Look in verse 12 in your Bible. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So the, what's going on here? Boaz says, yes, I'm your relative. I'm qualified to be a redeemer. But there's another relative that's closer in kin to you. That to, to you than I am. So we've got to go talk to him first and see. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. If he's not willing. So this other relative has to make a decision whether or not he's going to redeem Ruth or not. And we see that unfold in chapter 4. So here's a couple things about a kinsman redeemer that you need to understand that will be helpful. The redeemer loves mercy. In order for the redeemer to have a character and nature that he'd be willing to redeem someone like Ruth, a Moabite from another country, you've got to love mercy, even if it costs you something. The redeemer loves mercy, even when it costs him something. And we see it in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. I know you've all got the book of Leviticus memorized, but just in case you're lapsing a little bit, one of the things we see in Leviticus chapter 25 verse 25 is the the responsibility of this Redeemer is to get a relative out of slavery. So if you had a relative who was on hard times economically, who had willingly placed themselves in indentured servitude in slavery then it was the responsibility of a Redeemer to come along and get them out of that situation. To show mercy to that relative. You understand that much? It was also a responsibility of the relative to engage in what's called Leverite marriage. The word Levi here, it's not talking about a priest or anything. Levir means brother-in-law. It meant that if a woman's husband died, 
Then the brother-in-law had to marry her. If, he, if, if they were childless, the brother-in-law had to marry her so that the firstborn son of that new marriage would extend his name. Now why is that important? Because everyone in Israel was given a, par, a portion of the land of Israel. And nobody wanted to lose their stake in the land. It was extremely important to them. You remember the story of Ahab? Wicked Ahab in the Old Testament and Naboth? Naboth had a vineyard. And Ahab said, sell me your vineyard. I want that vineyard. And Naboth said, I will not do that. It belongs to my fathers. It's been given to me by God. It represents my portion, my inheritance in Israel. I can't do it. And so he had Naboth murdered and killed. The land was extremely important. So often, Leverite marriage was an act of mercy to keep that land and that name prolonged in Israel and the, and the family in which it was from. The Redeemer loves mercy even when it cost Him something. And the Redeemer loves justice. Because you see another responsibility of the Redeemer, if, you, if you're looking your Bibles in the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 35, Joshua chapter 20, tells us that the responsibility of the Redeemer, this kinsman, is if one of your kinfolk was murdered, it was your responsibility as the closest of kin to go and hunt that person down and execute them. Take care of them. Now we don't do things that way. Now we have courts and all that kind of stuff. We don't have, you know, that, that's not how we do things. We're not under the old covenant. But what's it tell us about God's character is the big picture here. That God loves not only mercy, but He told that kinsman to go after his relative's murderer because God loves justice. The Redeemer loves mercy and the Redeemer loves justice. And so the unfolding message here to Israel as they read the book of Ruth, after the day of the Judges period, they read this book, is this. God is the Redeemer. His people should turn and look to Him. This God who shows compassion and justice and mercy. Just as Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. He was looking to His Redeemer. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 19 says, Was it not to you who dried up the sea? What's He talking about? God's people being redeemed from Egypt. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? They knew that their God is a Redeemer. The prophet Isaiah was saying, Look! Look to the Redeemer! God is the Redeemer His people should look to, and God is the Redeemer His people should look like. God loves mercy even when it cost Him something. God loves justice. He's the Redeemer who loves justice. Will Boaz be that way? We're about to see. But God is the Redeemer His people should look like. The Goel, the Redeemer, His duties, responsibilities, really His character was to show mercy and seek justice. Something the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 23. You're good at tithing. Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law to love justice and to seek mercy. That's who God's people are supposed to be. So let me pause for a moment and address briefly some of the things that are going on in the nation right now in the world in relation to 
rioting and protest and calls for justice and Black Lives Matter and everything. And do you struggle with some of this about how to feel about it? The first person, the first black person I ever met in my life, as far as having a conversation with, was when I was 17 years old. I joined the Army. It was in January. I was in the delayed entry program, so I, the recruiter took me to a hotel in Knoxville and Holiday Inn, and, and guess who my roommate was? He was a black guy, about my age, young guy. And it was very awkward for me because I never had a conversation with a black person in my whole life. And here he walks into the room. And I don't remember what was said, not a whole lot, but I remember for some reason the news was on and something triggered something. And he made a statement like this. He said, the reason the black man is the way he is today is because how the white man treated him in the past. I was like, great. First conversation I'm ever going to have with an African American, and this is what is brought up. And I was too intimidated and young to say much, and I said, yeah, that's right. one of the things I was reminded of, though, was some truth in what he said. The culture and um, poverty, and especially of inner cities, is a lot of the result of how of the institution of slavery from years ago was not recovered from. And, but it seems like that fellow I met almost 30 years ago, and, and a lot of what we're seeing now is people... People want to feel, they want you to be outraged the way they're outraged. You ever come home to your spouse and maybe they're upset about something and you're like, oh, it's no big deal. And then they get mad at you because you're not upset as much as they are. And this is much how what's going on in our world right now. People are outraged and they want you to be outraged the way they're outraged and maybe their perspective is not exactly right either. It's hard to know how to feel about a lot of things. It's outrageous some of the things taking place with looters. It's infuriating. But the reality is most of us can't truly enter into the experience of African Americans, especially in the inner cities. So I'm, I'm trying to be careful what I say, but what we do know is this. God is concerned about justice, is he not? Do we not see that in this passage of Scripture? Do we not see that? He's concerned about mercy and he's concerned about justice and the actions of, the, of a Redeemer. And we must pray for that. So I, don't, I can't tell you how to feel. What I can do is say, pray for justice. Pray for justice. Not only for George Floyd, but for David Dorn, the, the St. Louis retired police officer who was Laid died in his own blood because of looters who killed him a few days ago. Pray for justice. Justice in relation to police officers who've not done the right things. And one scripture that comes to mind that helps me, reminds me about our Redeemer who loves justice and mercy is Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. My Redeemer, the one that loves justice and loves mercy. Let my words, the words I say on Facebook, social media, or to people in the hallways, let my words 
And even before my words, the meditation of my heart, how I feel and think about these things, let them first be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, this one who loves justice and loves mercy. Let me be like you. Well, let me conclude by calling attention to how Ruth chapter 3 ends. What's Boaz going to do? He says, you stay here tonight. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of you. Next morning, he says, go back to your mother-in-law. Here's some more grain. Here's some more food. And he shows up with it at the end of the book of, at the end of chapter 3. And Naomi's been waiting all night long. How did it go last night? She says, look here. And what does Naomi conclude when she sees the gift that's been given? And notice Boaz had said to her, you take this because you need to take it to your mother-in-law. Seems to me Boaz is seeking to reassure Naomi that he's going to be the redeemer if this other relative is not willing to do so. Verse 18, look at it, last verse of chapter 3. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She perceives in the gift giving to Ruth as she comes back that next morning, the redeemer, he's, he intends, this is a clear display, he's clearly intending this act of giving you food and letting you stay the night and coming back and he's not taking advantage of you. He's, it's a sign that he clearly intends to be the Redeemer. And Naomi's saying, let's trust the Redeemer to do all that we've asked. And that's the application for God's people. Trust the Redeemer to do all that is needed, to do all that is asked. We need to look to our Redeemer, do we not, church? We need to seek to be like our Redeemer, do we not? But we are not like our Redeemer. and We do not look to Him like we should. And since we all fall short of looking like our Redeemer, we must all look to the clear demonstration of our Redeemer's work to redeem us. And that's the cross, amen? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. The clear demonstration of our Redeemer's intention to one day and finally and fully redeem us. Even the redemption of our bodies, where there's no more injustice, where there's no more poverty, where there's no more sin. The clear intention of Him for that to happen on this earth took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. His redeeming work. He's clearly demonstrated that, even though we fall short. So we look and we rely upon our Redeemer's work. The gospel is the solution, brothers and sisters, to racial reconciliation. The Scripture tells us about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. That He's worked in Christ in such a way that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The way for hostility not to exist between races is us for all to realize we're all of one race, Adam's race, and we're all sinners, and our only hope is to trust in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's redeemed us all equally. The ground is level at the cross. And our calling is to point others to the Redeemer. Really, if we want to see things change in our world, 
in the sphere of influence that you have, point every single you person you come into contact with to the Redeemer. Be an ambassador of reconciliation. I'm not talking about race reconciliation. I'm talking about reconciliation with God. That's the biggest problem our world has is we're not right with God. When people get right with God through Jesus Christ and start quit playing religion, get right with God in their hearts and start looking like God who loves justice and who loves mercy, and things will get better. And it's our Redeemer we should look for because even as things get better, we're told and we're, it's displayed in Scripture. And I said it several times as we work through the end chapters of the book of Matthew. Things are going to get worse before they get better. That don't mean we run up a white flag and say, oh, the world's going to hell, so let's just not even worry about it. Let's just take care of our own. No, the church is not to be like that. We should pray and long for revival, but our hope should be in the king that's coming someday. In the day of the book of Ruth, there was no king, and each one did what was right in it right in his own eyes. They needed a king to come, and a king did come. But all those kings failed, if you read through the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. They needed a king to come who loves justice and who loves mercy. And he came, and his name is Jesus, and someday he's coming back. And so we're told in Luke chapter 21, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, when these things begin to take place, things like we're seeing right now in our world, folks, when these things begin to take place, we're to put our heads down and throw ourselves a pity party and get depressed. Does it say that? Woe is me. When these things take place, begin to take place, straighten up. Raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. He's coming. And that's what we must long for. We need Jesus to come. We need Jesus to be king. And we need to point Jesus to our king. And we need to look like our king. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you for the redemption that's freely given through him and the blood that he shed on the cross. Father, I pray that every single person in here would be trusting in Jesus. Not just playing the religion game and saying they love God and they're not that bad of a person or something like that. But that each person listening, each person watching, each person here would have come to a place in their life or even right now, Lord. Realizing that they've sinned against God. They don't love justice and mercy. We all have, whether it's prejudices or we show partiality. We have this bent in our hearts to say, yeah, but. We make excuses for our own sins. We're self-centered. We're selfish. We're jealous. We look out for number one. Number one is us often. God, convict us of our sin and show us that we desperately need to be saved from our sins through Jesus and help us to trust in Him, to repent and trust only in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing this song together as we close this morning and praise our God.
We're not going to ask people to come forward uh, during the invitation here. You don't get saved by coming forward anyway. Uh, some people do. They come forward and God converts them that way, not saying that don't happen. But if you want to talk with me about your relationship with the Lord, just like a young man did this morning, came up to me and said, I want to talk about baptism later. Well, if you want to talk about baptism, baptism won't save you, by the way. But if you want to talk about why a person needs to be baptized, you want to talk about your relationship with the Lord, I, I encourage you to seek me out, and I'll be standing at the back of the church this morning. Let's stand and praise our God this morning. No. 
It's good to be in the house of the Lord today, and uh, Tim, I'm going to ask you to close in prayer in just a moment, and if you're here today and uh, need to chat about anything, I'm going I'm to put this on just for your sake anyway. I'll be standing at the back and love to chat with you, or we can set up a time to talk later on, but, um, but hey, you invite somebody to come to church with you next week, or invite them to watch it on, on uh, TV, but more importantly, share the gospel with them. Be a minister of reconciliation and preach the gospel to others this week. So Tim, would you close us in prayer? Father God, we praise you for this time that we've had together this morning. God, we praise you for the fact that because of your sovereignty, it is well with our soul, God. We pray that as we move forward with this week, that we would continue to remember the message this morning, that we remember that the Redeemer is sovereign through all of this, that he has a plan through all of this, and that his hand is working through all of this, God. So we just, we pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds towards you this week, that you would put people on our path that we might talk to about you, God, even as we're distancing, God. We pray that we would still be able to share your gospel as it has worked through our life, God, but then also as it could work in their lives. God, we pray that you would turn people towards yourself, that you would glorify yourself, and we praise you in all things. In Christ's name, amen.